I'm a political junkie. I, I love it. I'm sad to say, and it's so toxic to say that out loud. And uh, so while Vacation Bible School is happening this week, um, the whole political world was gearing up for this really big court decision on Thursday. And, uh, and I knew I was messed up about it because I woke up at 5 o'clock on the morning, on Thursday morning. It was like Christmas morning. You know, when you're a little kid, and it's Christmas morning, you go outside, and you look in your tree, and you're like, nope, my, nothing happened yet. Well, at 5 o'clock in the morning, I wake up in the morning, I grab my phone, and I like check my like, top three websites. I'm like, shh. Nothing. So I'm like, oh, dang it. And uh, so I go back to sleep, 5.30, I check in. Finally, someone says, hey, we're going to know at 7 o'clock. I'm like, okay, 7 o'clock. Well, 7 o'clock, it's, that's what time I got to get ready and be here at the church. And so I am trying to be all here and all present. But in my mind, I'm like, it is Christmas. The most gigantic political event of, uh, at least this week, happened on Thursday. And, um, and so, well, okay, one sidebar. If you're a political junkie and uh, you want to talk shop, man, let's hook up. Let's grab a coffee. If we're on different ends, let's, let's get a Knob Creek. You know, we, we'll, we'll work it out. We'll, have, um, we'll do that. But, um, but in, my, uh, in my church uh, calling today as pastor, this is what my observation. Up until Thursday, one end of the political spectrum was gearing up for this decision to be the, the end of the republic, the, the, the ultimate showing of a dysfunctional co- congress and country. Then, on Thursday afternoon, another end of the political spectrum was saying, no, this really is the end of, of, the, of the world as, as we know it. And, and what I realized is, and mostly because you'll see when we get to our topic today, is there, what, no matter where you land politically, there's this awful reality that our political leaders um, are just dirtballs, right? That they... Um, <laughs> Because we have so much information. Before, when we didn't have information and a person would give a speech and they'd go on, you'd be like, that's great. But because we have so much information, we know all of their supporters, all of their donors. We get to start collect, you know, connecting all the dots. And we realize, oh my goodness, these guys are ego-driven. Um, they're money-driven. They're power-driven. And, uh, and so instead of going, this is our leader and we're going to follow them to wherever they lead us, we go, we know what's going on. We know what's really, you know, on both sides. And there's this kind of this crisis of leadership because uh, there's no leaders, there's very few leaders anymore that, that actually garner respect, garner trust, that people say, man, that person has my true best interest in mind, instead of they're trying to use me or work me for some personal or political or financial end. And, uh, and the bummer is, as information has become more and more free, uh, politics in general hasn't survived, uh, of course, but not only politics, even the church, right? Um, the last decade, the Catholic Church has been reeling from this crisis in leadership of, of people in authority using their power, using their authority to kind of try to protect people. And then as information has gone out, everyone's like, whoa. You realize there's just generations of abuse that they're trying to sort them, their, their way through. And, um, and from the church, the Catholic church, to evangelical churches and pastors falling and, and failing big time to political leaders um, just, you know, working us, um, there's this kind of overwhelming sense that leaders are dirtbags in general. Um, and, there's, and so you kind of have two options, right? You either go, well, I want to lead because I have personal gain and things I want to get accomplish. And, uh, and everyone who leads, they know that. Like when st- we have student leaders, right? Not our kids, of course, but there's student leaders out there. And you know these guys are just doing their resume building. Already at 15, they're trying to get as many things on their resume of all the things that they're in charge of. And all their, all their friends know exactly what's going on. They don't really care about the Interact Club, but they like being a leader in the Interact Club for that. And so... So part of people, there's driven people, they want to be leaders, but then the, what's happening more and more is everyone else kind of sits out. They say, 
Well, if I'm a leader, then people are going to think that I'm a selfish, prideful, money-hungry, whatever, bleepity-bleep thing, right? Or, and I don't want people to think that of me, so instead, I'm just going to be passive. I'm going to sit in the back, and I'm not going to do anything, and I'm not going to lead. And, um, and so there is. There's this crisis of leadership. And, my, uh, and th- this is, proves itself out every season in my favorite political um, reality show called Survivor. Do you guys ever watch Survivor? It's kind of old, and no, no cool people watch it anymore, but I still do. And, uh, but this is what I've noticed in Survivor. Every season, no one wants to be the leader. Because what happens if you're the leader on Survivor? You don't die. Come on, it's television. <laughs> right. You do get voted out. They go, oh, that person's the leader. So you have all these, like, you know, super smart, big, hunky men. They're like, that person's the leader. And they, whoosh, and they cut him out. Um, and so what does everyone else do? Everyone tries to just be passive and indirect and manipulate the whole thing. And, uh, and so Survivor, every season, no one wants to be the leader. But over the vast gazillions of seasons, there's been two survivors who were true leaders. They were true people who actually genuinely cared, not just for the million bucks, not just for being the power player, but they genuinely cared for people. They were smart. They were true leaders. And, uh, and sure enough, both of those people won unanimously. So there's this weird deal where in our culture, nobody wants to be a leader. We all want to be passive. We just think those guys are dirt balls. But when a true leader arises, people actually want to follow them. People actually want leaders and want leadership. And uh, this morning, we're going to spend some time in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at leadership. And uh, what I love, it begins like this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an, honor- an honorable position. And what's interesting to me is that Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying. Paul's an apostle, right? He has been uh, given power and authority by Jesus Christ himself to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And what he does, he chooses to use his apostolic power to say, this is a trustworthy saying. He says about four different times throughout 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And usually it's about things of faith. This is a trustworthy saying that God going to save your soul, that God forgives us our sins, right? It's all, these trustworthy sayings have to do with who God is, of what salvation means, of what it means to live out our faith. And yet, here we find Paul using his apostolic power, his, his place of authority, saying, you know what? Leadership is actually a high value. In fact, it's not even a high value. It's a noble task. It is like having honor and courage, right, and generosity, Leadership is to be this noble task that Christians are supposed to undertake. And, um, and so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say uh, in First Timothy. So if you have Bibles, let's turn, and let me pray for us before we hop into God's Word here. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you love us. I cannot believe that you've invited us to be in a relationship with you, that you've invited us to be your church, and that you've given us some freedom and flexibility to try to lead that church. And God, I pray that we would be humble um, as we approach your word this morning, that we would be sensitive and open to whatever you might have to teach us through your Holy Spirit. And God, in the places where uh, we may disagree and we may ruffle feathers, God, I pray that you would also be gracious as we smooth up those areas too. We love you, Jesus, so much. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7 says this. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever, whoever aspires to be an overseer or elder desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, 
faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy, full of respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage their own family, how can they take care of the church of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So over the next month or so, this is going to be kind of the rhythm of our, of our sermon series. We're going to be looking at the three vital ingredients of a quality leader. And as we're going to see throughout the sermon and throughout these messages, that this isn't just uh, for Alan, right? Alan's our, our church chair. This isn't just for Alan. This isn't just what he needs to do or me as a pastor. This is actually a calling by God for all Christians. All Christians, all believers should be aspiring to this noble task of leadership because we are leaders. We're leaders in our families, we're leaders in our communities, and we're leaders in our church. And sometimes we, those are official leadership positions, and sometimes they're informal leadership positions. So the deal is that we want to look at over the next few weeks what are the qualities of leadership. And, uh, and as we'll see with all this male-dominated language, uh, we'll also find, and there's some hiccups along the way, that Art gets to take care of. So all the hard stuff, Zan punts, I get a punt, Jeff's going to punt, and Art's going to try to make it all work. But for the next few weeks, we're going to look at these three uh, vital ingredients as a quality leader. The first one today, we're going to look at that a, a vital quality as a leader is someone that uh, is to be respected, that our outside image, how we portray, how we live, who we are on our outside, actually matters. Um, in our culture, that doesn't matter. It's our insides that matter. Um, but to be a quality leader, our, we need to be respected. Our outside choices and, and lifestyle matters. The second is that we are to have solid character. And third, we are to develop deep faith. And so as we unpack First Timothy uh, 3, we're going to be looking at some of these different themes. Um, how's that sound? Okay, well, it doesn't matter because I have the mic and you're kind church people and very few of you would get up and walk away. That's okay. We still have a full room. So right away, you, you read this thing. It says, uh, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desi- desires a noble task. Okay. Whoever desires to be an elder, whoever desires to be a presbyter. Uh, we have all these fancy words. And uh, in this passage in 1 Timothy, there's one in Titus too. Uh, all the great minds go, all right, we need to figure out what is God's design for church polity, for church structure, for church leadership. And uh, if you've been to uh, two churches in your entire life, you realize there's two totally different ways in which people have interpreted all the scriptures and how they choose to structure their, their leadership. If uh, I grew up Presbyterian and we had, uh, we had presbyteries and uh, elders and, uh, and deacons and all these words that were found in scripture, so I'm like, this is great. I come to our church and we have a leadership team and uh, ministry coordinators. You're like, well, wah, wah. like the, what? what? <laughs> What does Scripture say? Where, are we being unfaithful to, to God's Word? And, uh, and the deal is, as, you, as I was doing some study this week, you realize church leadership structure is so varied, right? The Methodists have a way. The Catholics have a way. The, the Covenant Church has a way. Uh, the Baptists have many ways, right? There's so many different ways in which they, that happens. And the deal is, is because what we find in this passage of Scripture, there's not the function or the form that this talks about. The function of the form is, is kind of this given. It's assumed that humans, when they gather, know how to have a leadership structure. 
That's the assumption. And what is important for Paul is not the form, it is not the function, but it is the qualities, it is the characteristics, it is the character of those people who are to lead. And, uh, and we see this already in the early church. Uh, there's this guy, this guy, he's a church father. His name is Ignatius, and he wrote this letter in 110 uh, uh, BC, uh, CE, the Common Era, or AD for you old school people. And, um, and the deal was, in his letter, he's talking about going on this journey, and he says, and he marks out, there's a bishop, and there's a presbyter, and there's deacons. And so then people said, oh, well, then there must be, that must be God's deal. There's bishops and presbyters and elders, I mean elders and then deacons. Um, but as you realize, w- the people who've been studying this, they realize in every culture, in every context, people gathered a certain way. And the context in which they gathered, um, Paul affirms basically. So in some context, they would go to these Jewish synagogues, and the way the Jewish synagogues would arrange themselves is they would have this council. There'd be this leader, this group of 12 elders or so, and then there'd be one ruler, one kind of head elder that would, that would manage that, right? And there's some uh, Baptist churches, right, that they're all elders, and then the, the preaching pastor is like the head elder. And, uh, but this wasn't like God's way. This was just how the synagogue chose to, in one version of the synagogue, how they chose to, uh, to conduct themselves. Um, but the deal is also in other places Paul went, he went to places that didn't, they didn't build their church on synagogue rule. They went to the Hellenistic, uh, Hellenistic people and uh, the Greco-Roman areas, and the way that they organized was totally different. So there they had uh, administrative boards or financial and cultic management. These people, right, if there was like finances or the way they're going to manage the temple or administrative boards for government, there was certain ways in which they managed themselves. And, uh, and who were tapped for those? Those were people of high prestige and uh, who were usually, excuse me, wealthy and full of honor and, uh, and were, you know, gravitated towards positions of authority. And so it made sense that people in that context they were the community leaders or people who should be in authority. So all that's to say is it's incredibly complicated, and, uh, and Art's going to cover up the parts that I mix, mixed up on that because we're not going to so spend too much time on, on, on church polity. But we do need to have grace for ourselves, for each other, for the Word of God, that, that there isn't this one way in which God wants to structure the church. Leaders naturally arise and those leaders lead and take care of the tasks that need to be taken care of. Our church has chosen to do it a certain way, and next week in the uh, Explorers class, you'll learn all about that. But the deal is what Paul is truly getting at is that the people who are tapped for those positions are to be a certain quality. They're they're to have certain character. They're to be people who are respected. They're to be people who have deep character. They're to be people who have a developing and growing and thriving faith. The people that we tap can't have one of those, can't have two of those. They are to have all three of those things so that we don't get in trouble with what we're, do- what we're finding in our cultural context, which is leaders are those guys who are dirtballs who are trying to work us, or the other extreme, which is, well, we're not going to do anything, and I'm not going to put myself out there because we're all messes. No, leadership, the call to lead, the call to lead your family, your community, your group of friends, where are you going to lunch after church? All those leadership things, big and small, is a noble task, is a high calling, and one that we want to take seriously. And I like this, uh, it says in this one commentary, the qualifications set out suggest that respectability of the sort that would sustain or establish the church's credibility in society were uttermost in mind in Paul when he wrote this. That the assumption is that we live in the world, that we have friends outside of this little room, that we um, live in a way that 
that actually garners respect, that garners uh, affection towards who we are and doesn't make people continue to be cynical about how judgmental and hypocritical the church is, right? We, the leaders are the people who help the church uh, change their, their view, um, uh, change the culture's view of them. So with all that being said, this morning we're going to look at um, what does it mean to be worthy of respect? And it's interesting because for me, uh, I'm part of the bitter Gen X generation, and, uh, and then it just gets worse for, the, for our four, four millennial friends. And uh, we've seen all the baby boomers, you know, mess up, and they, used to, they put on this perfect face, and then they just wreck, you know, their lives and their families. And so all of us Gen Xers are like, ah, well, then who cares? And we're just going to, like, beat dirt balls and just be proud of it. And, uh, and so there's this whole move, and, and it's so true even with our students, right, that, that they just want to be authentic. I just want to be authentic in who I am. And so if I drink too much, man, I drink too much, but at least I said it, you know. I don't pretend to not drink too much. I just do. And, um, and what's interesting is we look at this idea that Paul says, no, we actually want to be people who are respected, which means that we care about what other people see, that how I am, who I am, I changed my shirt four times because the shirt I wanted to wear was too tight because I've been eating too much lately. So I changed my, I care about what people think about me, what people see about me. And uh, on one hand, it's vain about my shirt for sure, but my attitude and, and who I am and how I conduct myself is actually really important. It's not just important for leaders, it's important for all Christians that we are to be people who are worthy of respect. And this morning, we're just going to look at three simple things from this passage about what it means to be people worthy of respect. So right away in verse 2, it says, Now the overseer or elder or presbyter is to be above reproach. This is such um, a great word, above reproach, blameless. It is somebody who conducts themselves in a way that no one anywhere at any time can, 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 um, can accuse you of falsehood or, or, of, or being wrong or being messed up, right? That your ducks are always in order. And uh, what's interesting is, as a Gen Xer, as someone who strives to be authentic, right, this is an impossible task. It is impossible to say, I need to conduct my life in a way that even the appearance of wrong on any level, at any moment, at any time, is my goal. But even though I'm a Gen Xer and I strive for authenticity, it doesn't change the biblical truth that the calling of God is that I live in a way to be above reproach. That the way people see me, the way that they see me interacting with people doesn't cause people to go, whoa, what is that guy doing? What's that all about? That, that all those questions are, are erased, right? I don't want to have people to go through all these mental hoops in order they go to, oh, Ben's an okay guy. And so it means, right, that there's certain things that I have to say no to along the way. When I was in college, um, um, I became a Christian right at the beginning of college. And so when I went to college, I actually tried to live for Christ. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to drink beer. Even when I turned uh, 21, I had, ah, beer which was so rebellious of me, I know. But uh, for me, it was at UC Santa Barbara where, uh, I mean, hello, it's UC Santa Barbara. People (laughs) love to drink. And there's there's this, but if you were a Christian on campus, and even if you drank responsibly, you you just were put in with this whole grouping of people. And so to be above reproach, especially in this, a couple ministry leadership things I was a part of, um, I had to say, I'm going to give up this thing because of what it might appear to be. And uh, some of it is for what the world thinks of it. And truthfully, most of it is actually for what our fellow Christians think about it, for what our weaker sisters and brothers think about it. And, uh, and, and whether um, it's for people in-house or people outside of the house, we need to be people who are above reproach. Who we are, what the ways we live are important. And it often means that us Christians, us followers of Christ, 
need to say no to some of our freedoms. Um, it doesn't mean God loves us better. It doesn't mean we're better Christians, but it means that we recognize that people see us. And people, because of their context, bring their baggage to how they view me or how they view you. And so we need to be aware of those things where we find ourselves. And so we need to say, okay, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of my reputation, I am going to say no to this, this, and this. Um, now, the hard thing is this idea of being above reproach is kind of where the church has gotten themselves in big trouble. Because to be above reproach meant, uh, right, no drinking, no movies, no playing cards. How's Go Fish messing me up, you know? But, but there was a season, apparently, where it did. And, uh, and so now, like, I want to play Go Fish, but other older Christians are like, man, you're playing Go Fish? I know it's a little more complicated than that. But, you know, but as culture changes, there's different things that matter. But uh, unfortunately, the Christians have gotten a bad rap uh, because what happened is we've made being above reproach, well, not us because we're all authentic and we don't care anymore, but as we strive to be above reproach, um, what happens is in Christian communities, um, those things become the law, right? So you say no to these certain things to protect the idea that you're not these certain things, right? Even though I made a bourbon joke at the beginning of the sermon, uh, that was a bad call, but right? So for me, I go, but I've made it this, this rhythm. Okay, I'm 37 years old. I think it's okay if I have a bourbon. Um, however, I won't have two bourbons, and however, um, if I go out, I'm only going to have one, and however, if you're a friend in, of mine and you hate bourbon and you think that's awful, I'm going to have a Diet Coke, and that, and that is fine with me. And, uh, but the deal is I only have one, or I don't have any depending on whom I'm with because I don't want someone to look at me and go, all you do is drink bourbon? What's up with that? Um, and then, but it, the idea, right, it's the above reproach protects this other thing. But then the Christians have made the, like some Christians have made this rule the thing. So if you break this thing, it's just as bad as if you've broken this thing. And this is where the, the, the Pharisees got in so much trouble. The law says we're not to work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees then came up in the Talmud of all these complicated rules so that they would protect themselves from working on the Sabbath. But then what happened is, right, when Jesus is walking through the grain fields and eats uh, some grain, the Pharisees are like, whoa, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. And uh, they're like, what? And like, so Jesus kind of says, no, no, no. This, all these rules and regulations aren't the thing. The Sabbath is the thing. So even though we strive to be above reproach, we need to understand that those things are just a protective barrier to protect us from from actually being people of high moral character. So uh, the deal is that we are, that even as authentic and uh, as postmodern as we are, we do need to take what other people see and view us seriously, and we need to live accordingly. We need to be above reproach. Um, but the deal is that we cannot just um, be above reproach, because I don't know about you, but I have some friends of mine who are very good at being above reproach, but they're jerks, and I don't want anything to do with them right? So the deal is being above reproach isn't the only thing. That's the first thing. It says that we are to be above reproach. Uh, Paul goes on to say, he says, we must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do this in a manner worthy of full respect or of, of having good reputation. And what's so interesting about this is people with good reputation have found this balance. People with good reputation live above reproach, right? They got that part down. They got the, the, the letter of the law down. The letter of the law is important, and we as Christ followers, we follow it. They have that part down. But to be someone of good reputation, they don't just get the letter of the law, they get the heart of the law, right? That they are people who actually are about the Sabbath, who are about uh, being temperate, who are about being faithful to their wife. They're about managing their money well. They're about managing their household well. And they do it in a way that garners respect. I don't know if you see these people around, we have friends who 
who aren't, they just don't say no to everything, but they live in a way that like causes you to go, oh, I want to be near them. My friend Ken is that guy. Uh, and uh, I love you, Ken. And the more I've gotten to know Ken, the more I'm like, I want to be him. And uh, he is this amazing man. Not only does he love Jesus, not only is he faithful to his wife, and not only is he the hardest worker I know, every time I get to know him and get closer to him, I'm like, oh, like where's the cracks? Like, there aren't any. And I mean, Shanna would be like, uh, yes, there are. Um, but what's so cool about Ken, too, is not only, right, he doesn't just like, I have my above reproach down. I have my family all in order, but he also lives in a way where he puts his faith out there. He's part of the open table, and he's a, he's a part of this group of, of people who are pouring this entire year into this woman's life, and uh, he doesn't have time for that. He has a family. He is an important person in his job, but his faith is important. He not only has strong character, solid faith, uh, but he puts it into practice, and I can't believe that we're friends, so I appreciate that, Ken. And, uh, but Ken is someone, I think, in our church who exemplifies, what does it mean to be good character? That the more you spend time with them, the more you realize, okay, that might be what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Um, it's interesting, this part where it says, the person who uh, gets their children to obey them and manage their, their, their family well. I didn't use you for that example, Ken, sorry. Because Cameron's a little bit of a troublemaker right now. Um, <laughs> but I... A couple weeks ago, a bunch of us dads did this father-son camping trip, and there was about 20 dads and 25 little, like, hellion kids. I mean, it was out of control. And there's no wives there, so we're like, eat marshmallows at 7 in the morning. We don't care. <laughs> and uh, and here, here's a stick with some fire. Just don't, you know, it's a second-degree burn. How bad can that be? And, uh, and we just had a great, a great time. But what's interesting, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you have this rhythm with your family, and you kind of behave, and, the, and you kind of lock it down a certain way. But then when you're out in public, you realize maybe I didn't lock it down well enough at home. Maybe, you know, they, your kids don't realize that, that, no, they're supposed to behave a certain way outside. You give them certain freedoms inside the home, but outside the home, um, it's a whole different deal. Well, on a camping trip like this, and not to be judgmental because these are my friends, but you look around and you're like, interesting, right? <laughs> like you see how they manage their life, how they manage their kids. All of a sudden, oh, marshmallows at 7 o'clock is okay. Right on. Good to go. Um, but what's interesting is that another guy, uh, Brad Oldenbrook, He's the oldest dad. I mean, he started late, poor guy. Um, but, he, but he's the oldest dad of this group. And uh, so he's, you know, older, and we're, and he has, but he has kids in our same age. And what's interesting is here we are, like, all around the camp are these, like, tents spread all over the place and, and stoves and marshmallows. And then there's Brad in his sight. And he has music, and he has nuts and wine and classical music. And, uh, and, they're just, and he's hanging out. And Chase, his son, is just being so gracious and kind and eating his vegetables. And you're like... Oh, that's what it looks like. Okay, thanks, Brad. I appreciate that. But there's this thing when, right, when you see somebody and you see that the way that they manage their life, they manage their home, they manage their kids, they go, okay, obviously he's not just faking it, right? Me, I'm running, no, stop it. I'm trying to lock it down. But obviously there's a way in which people manage their life and their being that they go, okay, they figured something out. And Scripture says that those guys who manage their household well, Man, those are the people that we want to manage the household of God. They are to be the shepherds of the people of God. Being a leader in the church isn't about all these administrative tasks that need to be accomplished. It's about caring and shepherding the people of God. And so if people can do that well in their own family, with their own kids, even on a camp out that was as chaotic as ours, that's a guy I want at the table. And how cool that Brad is the guy, excuse me, is the guy that's at our table. All right, so if we want to be, uh, have a good reputation, we need to be people who are above reproach. We need to be people who have a good reputation. And then this last one. This idea of a good reputation has to be both inside and outside the church. 
Um, sometimes in the church, right, we get together and we have this weird little culture among us. And uh, it's what's so I love about Marin Covenant. It's not so much here because, right, there's no Christians in Marin. So we like come together and we're like, oh, this is super great. But a lot of us have come from contexts where you have this kind of these. It's probably my. Um, we, uh, we, we've come from contexts where there's this idea where Christians have this certain culture in which we live and we have certain rules and laws, so we're above reproach. We've locked down our kids and so we have a good reputation. Um, but for whatever reason, people outside of that little world look in and they go, what is up with those guys? And uh, the deal is, the expectation is that we live in a way that those outside of this room go, whoa. They might have weird rules, and I don't understand why Ben doesn't like Bud Light so much. What's up with that? But um, he's someone who has a good reputation. And uh, the deal is that the expectation is that we live in a way that our non-believing uh, friends, people who are not associated with the church, people who have been burned by the church, whatever their background is, that we have a reputation that the way we live isn't just to lock ourselves down, isn't just to hide away from people, but we interact with people in a way that is the smell of life, is the smell of perfume for people. Um, What's so amazing, um, so Matt, our our new junior high guy, um, is on staff, and one of the things he's talking about is being on campus and getting to some junior high schools, and he's going through some different schools, and he's like, now tell me about Hamilton. And I'm like, oh my goodness, here's the deal. At Hamilton, right, because of Peter, because of who he is, because he's been the ambassador to this school, our church has a good reputation, right? Because for five years, we've been watchdog dads, we've given them money, we've done certain things, we've blessed them, we've just blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. And now they like us, right? Well, duh. And we're not even trying to get anything from them. We're, we're not going, this is our big plan. No, we want to share the heart of God, which is love and grace and mercy and generosity with them. And Peter was the front of that person. And Peter is like the most respected person on the campus. Um, they go, oh, Peter, Peter, do you know Peter? Do you know Peter? Like, Peter is the man on that campus, and Peter is above reproach. In fact, he, he's more legalistic than I was, am, right? Because he's part of the old school. He doesn't even play cards anymore. But the deal is, he's, he, even though that's who he is, he's someone who has a good reputation. And even they go, oh, Peter, he's a fuddy-duddy who doesn't play cards. His reputation, his love, his care means that we now, through him, through his hard work, have a great reputation on that campus. And so, Peter, I thank you for that work, and it's a gift for us. And, uh, and for me, that feels almost too big and too noble. I have too many problems, and, too, uh, and my life is too chaotic. And, um, but the deal is, what I found is, even on a small level, we can be the fragrance of Christ, because there are certain values that our community has that we can partner with. And um, my wife, uh, Katie, is amazing at this. My wife also, she's a super good fuddy-duddy, and she has all of her laws in, in effect, and she's uh, someone who's worthy of respect for sure. But what's funny is we, uh, our little school at San Ramon, she's like all BFF with this group of moms. And whenever I pick up my kid, I always feel awkward. There's always moms. And like, don't you work guy? I'm like, I know, I'm a pastor. And then they're all weirded out by me. And th- <laughs> but the deal is, but Katie has won them over. And she's only won them over why? because she's simply their friend. She simply sees them. She cares about them. She loves their kids. She's generous to them. She goes out of their way to pick their kids up, whatever they need. She's, and, and she doesn't do it for some big, massive, manipulative scheme. She does it because God has crafted her this heart of empathy and compassion. And my wife is like this superstar in San Ramon. And she's not even trying to be. Simply by being someone who is full of grace, full of mercy, full of generosity, she has garnered the respect of everybody, which is so helpful because when I go, hi, I'm a pastor, they're like, Whoop, see you later. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I'm going to stay in the back. But because of who my wife is, I actually have a place of friendship 
on that campus, which is kind of a reverse role from 50 years ago, but that's how it is. And, uh, and if we are going to be people who are going to be leaders, and not just leaders, right? This is the highest and noble calling of all Christians. We have to take seriously how people view us. We can't just be like, hey, we're, we're authentic. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. We pursue holiness. We strive to be holy and pure people above reproach. We don't want people to look at us and go, what's that really all about? Whatever it takes, whatever boundaries we need to set up in our lives so that no one has to do mental hoops to get to who we are, we have to set those up. But we don't just live by the letter of the law. We live by the spirit of the law, and we are people of good reputation. We are people who care for each other, who love each other, not just in this body, but in the entire community. The expectation is that the church is missional, that the church is outside of these walls. The expectation is that we are going to rub shoulders with people who don't get us, who don't get the church, who don't get Jesus, who don't get any of it. And we win them over and we woo them over by being the very fragrance of Christ. We don't need more people carrying signs and pointing our fingers and getting in their face about whatever thing they're doing. We, as the body of Christ, have our ducks in a row. We help each other follow Christ. We help each other succeed. We pick each other up and are gracious when we fall. And we live in a way that others actually see us and hopefully would honor and glorify Jesus because of it. It's a high calling. It's scary and awful, but it's the calling that we have. It's a noble, noble task. All right, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll skedaddle. Look at that, eight minutes early. Unless I get going praying, but I won't. (laughs) Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have to admit it is frightening that you have called me to be a leader. As a true Gen X person, as someone who sees all the fault and chaos of leaders and the death and destruction that leaders have done and the way people view leaders in our context, to be tapped to be one of those is a scary, frightening calling. And the truth is it should be scary and frightening for all of us. Our kids are watching our neighbors are watching, our coworkers are watching. And who we are and how we live is a representation of the God we serve. So God, for me and maybe for some of my friends, I pray that you would forgive me, forgive us. You'd help us get our boundaries in order, that we would truly live above reproach, that we would strive for holiness, not in a legalistic sense, but because, God, we care about your reputation. But not, let us not just be people who are letters of the law, but that we would be spirit of the law, that we would be gracious and kind and compassionate to all, that we come, to all the people we come in contact with so that they may come to know the love and saving grace of your son, Jesus. I pray more and more of us would strive for the noble task of being an elder, an overseer, a deacon, a leadership team being leadership team leader, a ministry leader, a small group leader, a Sunday school worker, a mom, a dad. Whatever you have us, God, may us lead, and may we lead in a way that honors you. Amen.